Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, But when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. I'm Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. I'm with Carly Malcolm, who is the lead for NC Fellow with us this year through the North Carolina Institute of Government. She's working on special projects for us through the Register of Deeds office. And uh, today we have a special guest the Reverend C. Bradley Hunt II is here with us today. Welcome, Bradley. Thank you. Uh, Bradley is assistant pastor over at New Light Missionary Baptist Church, where he's youth pastor, and he's a community leader. He's been involved in a number of community organizations dealing with everything from race equity, policing in communities of color, and he's uh, active very much in the pulpit forum here in town, as well as the Greensboro and North Carolina NAACP. We uh, are thankful, Bradley, to have you here today because these podcasts are are put in place to talk about issues of death and dying, and we are really interested in having a conversation and learning more about death, dying, and end-of-life concerns and issues as it particularly relates to the African-American community. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. So where did you grow up? Are you from Greensboro originally? Right. So I I did. I grew up in, in Greensboro. I like to say that I'm straight out of Moses Cone. Uh, born and raised here. My mother was a school teacher at uh, Jackson Middle School. She taught there for 23 years. Uh, we grew up off of Random and Road in South Greensboro. She was a single parent. I watched her provide for my sister and I by any means necessary, Jeff. She uh, worked two and three jobs. And really that instilled in me early on how important it is to work hard and to be determined and dedicated to your family and to whatever you put your mind to. And I learned, also learned early on that, you know, my mother was a professional college degree, a school teacher. She taught NFL players, successful business people, but uh, we still had to struggle to make ends meet. And uh, so it just taught me that it's not always necessarily about credentials, but it's about, you know, hard work, dedication. That's how I was able to Become the man that I am today by watching my mother. Wow. Sounds like your mom was an incredible role model. Absolutely. Um, now, you are over at uh, New Light. You know, did you grow up within a faith community or did you grab onto the faith later on in life? Or how did that journey start for you and lead you to where you are now? Right. So, you know, growing up, I always thought that, you know, my mother had a drug problem because every time the church would open, she would always drag us to church. Um, and so, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <drug> <laughs> <problem>. <laughs> so, so we were drugged to church um, all the time. And so, you know, faith has always been a part of our family structure and our belief system. And my mother thought it was important to instill in us uh, some foundation and some sense of something that is greater than you, something that has to do more with what you believe 
um, and not necessarily who you are, but uh, what do you believe and what do you stand for? Um, and who are you in times of adversity? And I believe uh, it was those values that allowed me to continue to stay in, in church because it's been tough to stay committed to the black church because we have a number of challenges. Uh, people come to church expecting perfect people. And if you're not careful, you will believe that everyone that is in church has no faults. And navigating the fact that the church is a, certainly a hospital for the sick, um, it presents challenges almost daily for me as a pastor, as a youth pastor. Imagine what it's like to, to minister to young people in this time. And so, you know, been in church all my life, still struggling to understand what is my purpose, being a young person, accepting a calling early on in life, uh, relatively early. I have peers that started, you know, way younger than I am or that I was when I started. So just trying to understand, you know, how to navigate the challenges, how to expose the classic Jesus, not the one that we romanticize and make fit our lifestyle, but the classic Jesus that fought for the poor, the least, the left out, the lost. And so that has been something that I found to be most important to me, that Jesus, in fact, was a social reformist. Let's take away all of the tradition and the customs that come along with the black church, and let's really try to define how uh, we're supposed to live um, in a way that would be pleasing to our creator. Yeah, and and Bradley, I will say this in knowing you, what I feel from you is that when the community is hurting, you're hurting. I think in the settings that I've known you is that there there is a faith tradition that connects to those people who are excluded from systems and culture and in society. And I feel that there's a piece of you in all the environments I've been around where you take that in and, and at times speak very powerfully to it. And that's, I will say, I really appreciate that about you. And Sounds like your mother taught you well, and uh, of course you get none of that at New Light, right? <laughs> uh, that's a joke. Uh, uh, you know, the New Light community is very active in the community, and so uh, in terms of uh, your approach as an assistant pastor, youth pastor, dealing with grief and other issues like that, how does that come into your world, into your ministry? How do you see it where you are? particularly within the black community. Right. So I think for 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 me and for the believers, um, those that I'm connected to, our understanding of life, right? Because I think you have to have uh, some basic understanding of life in order to understand death. And our understanding is that we're here for a little while to live. If I could use an analogy, at, at many cemeteries, you have someone's date that they were born and someone's date that they died. And in between is that dash, right? Dash. That dash, which tells all the story. That's that's really what it's about. And for for us, um, you know, understanding that dash and understanding what it means to live and take full advantage of life, understanding that at some point, life as we know it will come to an end. We also understand that it doesn't necessarily mean for us the ending. It's the end of our earthly existence. But we also believe that there's something greater to come. And so grief for me is the understanding that to be absent of life to me is not necessarily death. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. That's what our text teaches us. And so 
understanding that there are cycles of life. How you live will be judged and determined by the creator. And then you die. As a youth pastor, I've had many experiences. Um, I've had young people that uh, tried to commit suicide. I've had young people that could not understand why God, in their opinion, would take their loved ones. Why would God take my mother? Why would God take my father? Uh, these are the probing questions that that we deal with as youth ministers. And for me, first of all, understanding that I may not have all the answers. And I think a lot of times pastors and preachers, uh, we want to, you know, we want to have all the answers. And what I found with Generation Zers, millennials, we're more connected to relationships and not necessarily, you know, the wisdom that I believe other generations have been connected to. And meaning that it's not really important that uh, you're interested in me or my well-being, but that you are thoughtful and that you are, you know, knowledgeable. That seems to be an emphasis. But for this new generation, it's more about relationships. And so being able to sit with them, you know, not really responding, but making sure that they understand that I understand where they are and giving them an opportunity to grieve and to deal with with loss has been uh, my approach to to addressing some of the issues and some of the questions that have come up with uh, especially young people around death and dying. Mm. And death and dying issues can be incredibly painful. And the idea of being present which I hear you say, sometimes you don't have the answers. And it's about being with and being in relationship to people who are struggling and try to help support them. I know within a number of African-Americans that I've known celebrating their lives through funerals in the black church, there's a special quality to that experience that is almost indescribable. It's incredibly powerful. In many situations, it's been incredibly powerful and moving for me. And one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about was that culture and the traditions that go along with that when celebrating a life. So we talked about that a little bit on the phone, and and I, I think you you know, you got a word to that. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I, I get chills, Jeff, when when I think about the Black Church experience as it relates to our homegoing tradition and our celebrations and what we have done since we entered these shores and. You know, I think about uh, recently George Floyd, his funeral, and you think about all of the funerals of those who have uh, died by the hands of police, black folks, unarmed. Our community has had to mourn, and it's been public. You know, these are public funerals and deaths and services. And I think about some of the icons, Whitney Houston's funeral, and uh, some of the folks, John Lewis, that even, you know, people that have lived and led amazing lives. The truth is they all come back to the same place as, you know, George Floyd is, you know, at, at his funeral, many of the same elements were there for Whitney Houston and, and John Lewis. And so to me, that suggests that no matter how you lived, no matter who you were, your contributions <laughs> to society, the black church, the black community has a way of celebrating you, right? And doing that in a way that you receive the commendation that we believe that you deserve simply by being a human, simply by being one who was a part of our community. And I think that's something beautiful about the experience. And there is no other experience like a Black funeral. When you think about the elements, W.E.B. Du Bois in his book, Souls of Black Folks, talks about the three elements of Black worship. And he talks about you know, of course, there is uh, singing and then 
Of course, there is the preaching. But lastly, he talks about what he calls the frenzy. And that is what we believe to be the Holy Spirit moving and uh, giving credibility to our gathering. And a lot of times in black homegoing celebrations, what you are able to experience is that frenzy that people are gathered in one place, like-minded, and celebrating the life of one who has passed on. Understanding, and Jeff, this is important because we really believe in our tradition that one day we'll see you again. And I think that that really speaks to who we are as a people. Resilient, one of the things that, that I appreciate about our community is that we have this faith that says, hallelujah, anyhow, uh, no matter what happens to us, we have found a way to rejoice, even in, in, in difficult times. And that has been our plight. That has been something that we have done consistently. And I just rejoice when we have an opportunity to see black church on display, when the world can get just a glimpse of what I'm able to receive every week, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and so we, we're thankful for the witness and what it means to our community to experience a homegoing celebration. We don't say that lightly. We, we mean that this is a tradition that we believe is one that allows us to really celebrate the existential, the essential being of a person that is a part of our community. Mm. You, when I talked to you on the phone, you said that there is a quality within these services and in the belief that death is not the end. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a lot of funerals mm -hmm. and I've been, you know, there's some finality there, mm -hmm. right? Certainly. <laughs> but Certainly. I know I've been to a number of African-American churches where when I walked out, death was not the end, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the spirit is alive and moving and the soul mm -hmm. The music that comes through. And for me, I can see that within the DNA of a people that has struggled for hundreds of years mm -hmm. and overcome enormous hardship, bigotry and discrimination, institutionalized racism, slavery, Jim Crow, all of these things that would crush a people. Mm -hmm. um, yet, I guess uh, they rise yes, sir. Uh, as a, as a very... Uh, mm -hmm powerful woman once said. Absolutely. Um, and so I know it's it's been touching to me. Absolutely. And Carly is going to get some questions in here. So <laughs> she's been anxiously waiting. I have. And she's got yeah. a couple questions she wants to throw out there. All right, let's yeah. do it, All Carly. Right. Let's roll. Listen. <laughs> I'll give it up. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, there are segments of our society that are still more or less segregated by race. Uh, I wanted to know, like, how that shows up in your work. How do you encounter that? Absolutely. So we know that it's, it's no secret that Sunday mornings, you know, pre-COVID, that was a segregated time that, you know, uh, for society. Black people go to black church, more or less, and white people go to white churches. And we know that to be the case. I like to believe that there are not two different messages, but it's always something that intrigues my intellect, why is it that there is this separation in, in worship? If we all are indeed worshiping the same God, why is there a distinction? Mm -hmm. I think that speaks more to our, our struggles and challenges as a society, certainly speaks to institutional racism. Uh, I think it also speaks to this othering that happens in society where our faith practices 
have yet to be validated by the dominant culture and seen as something that is real. And so I think we have some ways to go in that. But I also see deep value in Black folks having a space that they can say is theirs. Mm -hmm. When you think about our communities and you think about the value of our communities, property value, for instance, in America, in your Black communities, the highest value properties are going to be your churches, right? And when you think about a Black community, the value will be in the Black church. And so I see that as an indication that the church is the cornerstone of our community. And it is a place where we feel that we can be ourselves, that uh, we're able to express ourselves in a way that we can't do anywhere else. Um, And so I think that although I would hope that at some point we'll be able to integrate, in a sense, come together, I also see great value and uh, what we have been able to accomplish separately. But certainly to your point, that not only in the Black church is there separation, but in funeral service, right? You know, you have your Black funeral homes, you have your white funeral homes, um, and even some places, Hispanic and Jewish, just depending on where you are. In the South, it's pretty much Black and white, right? And so I think that's also with reason a lot of your funeral homes, especially in this area, Black funeral homes, have been in business for quite some time. Hargett Funeral Service here in Greensboro is, I believe, the fourth oldest funeral home in the country. Uh, The oldest here in in North Carolina, the fourth (laughs) oldest in the country. They go back to the 1800s. And I believe that Black people have always connected to those funeral homes that have been here for a while. And so I think that's the affinity that Blacks have with Black funeral homes. But I also see where at this time of a rise in cremations, there are more options. And so I'm seeing now that where you have Blacks going to many different establishments and it's not as cut and dry as it once was. And so I think that uh, at some point, as I said, I would love to see us come together. I would love to see us value each space equally. But until that time, I have been impressed by the service that I've seen that Black funeral homes provide to those grieving families. Mm -hmm. And I think that resonates with our community, being able to relate to someone. And then there's also this piece, Jeff, where we believe that Black embalmers have a way of understanding our features, our anatomy, our biology. So we're able to, a Black embalmer is able to bring the loved one to a place where they are presentable and recognizable. Mm -hmm. And we're also able to connect in that way. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, in addition to that, issues that affect the black community in ways that it doesn't affect white people. Um, So when we're thinking about institutional racism, you know, you're an activist for justice and for health equity. How does that all affect the black community in terms of mortality, what effect does that have, that inequality on the grieving process? Right. So, and it's all connected. It's all connected very much so. When we think about this pandemic, 200,000 dead Americans dead, we know a large proportion of that number is black and brown people. And what we also know, this is undebatable, we know this is due to issues that were pre-existing before COVID. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the lack of adequate health care, when there is in, in the state of North Carolina, where our General Assembly has decided to deny Medicaid expansion 
to 500,000 North Carolinians, poorest among us. We know that has an impact on COVID numbers and mortality in our, our community. We also know that we have issues with food deserts and nutrition. Thinking about the number of Black students that would be missing meals if we hadn't put things in place to make sure that their school lunches were still being provided, which we had to fight for to be continued until the end of the year. There's always a continuous move to make sure that our community has what we need. Black mortality is connected to social issues. Because we are given these circumstances, and don't say given lightly because I believe that these are systems that, you know, our economic system, law enforcement, criminal justice system, education, I believe that these are systems that are intentionally put Black folks in a position where we have to fight for the most basic rights. That has been something that I have watched over and over again. Crowdfunding, for instance, for Black folks, that young people who didn't have insurance, um, and now they have to go to GoFundMe and try to figure out a way to pay funeral expenses because we live in a community that is riddled with violence. And not that Black people are prone to criminality, but we live in a society that says put all of the Black people in a certain space and allow them to fend for themselves. And if the violence does not come to where we live, then there's no issue, right? And so we've seen that perpetual cycle of poverty. And generationally, we have not been able to avoid those same circumstances of those that came before us. And so I think it's, it's certainly vitally important to consider our social standing in society and how it weaves with the death and dying process. You can't really separate the two. They are joined at the hip. And I think if we can address some of the things that are plaguing our community, then we would, there would be a different way that we would look at how death and dying affects our community. Yeah, and that's really the systemic piece, right, of mm -hmm. systemic racism. A lot of times we see things as individual choices, individual circumstances, mm -hmm. but can't really ignore the structural barriers in place that affect health and that affect the death and dying process as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And Carly, you've been working on this. Some of the statistics, infant mortality rates are higher for black babies than any other racial category, more than twice that than whites. When you look at maternal mortality rates for black women, three times that of white women. Black folks are more than four times likely to die by homicide as white folks. You couple that with unemployment rates, mm -hmm. uh, education achievement levels, lack of opportunity, basic fairness systemically. I was looking at something from Wisconsin, and they were talking about differences between African Americans and whites as it relates to pain management. If you enter in, mm -hmm. you know, are African Americans adequately assessed and treated mm -hmm. across care settings? Mm -hmm. Communication, the idea of African Americans reporting poor communication and lack of satisfaction at times with quality end-of-life care. The whole idea of culturally talking about advanced care planning and being prepared and having the support around doing that. And also hospice care yes. uh, bleeds into this in terms of not only just having knowledge about hospice, but the availability and opportunities for it, especially when you're dealing with the level of economic stress yes. that in many cases are happening in the black community. It's not just happening you know, it didn't just happen yesterday, right? It's no. something that when we talk about issues of systemic racism, 
we see it across generations. And if you look at, and Bradley, you and I were part of a discussion over a year or so about policing and community of colors. And one of the things that, that we talk about is if you polled 80% of the people in the white community that if there was police abuse of power, they would say no. 80% in the African-American community would say there was. Yeah, absolutely. And what that presents is a tremendous challenge for our community to be able to walk into sometimes very difficult discussions, you know, not only in terms of race and policing, you've also got these health issues that can be incredibly personal. And people don't, in general, like to talk about death and dying. Mm. And we find so many ways to avoid it. So we see that while... We have these issues that cut across race when you look at the African-American community. You can't deny that those issues are endemic and there and have to be addressed in a unique way. Uh, we uh, know that you have a background in funeral and cremation services. Okay. Tell us about how that all came to be. Yeah. So I've always had an interest in the death care industry. And it goes back, Jeff, there's a thing in the black community around funeral programs, right? So, and even more than that, I watched my grandmother in Charleston, South Carolina. My family's from Charleston, South Carolina, downtown Charleston, America Street. And I watched my grandmother go to the funeral home and view the remains of people that she may or may not have known. And that was something that she did and that others did. And, and a lot of times she would go there and realize that she knew the person once she got there. So I watched my grandmother do that. And then I also watched her collect funeral programs, right? She'd go to a funeral and there's a program. She takes that, she brings it back home and she puts it in a location where she has other funeral programs stashed. You know, once she passed, we were going through her things and just found boxes of funeral programs. And so I believe my grandmother actually gave me this uh, desire to want to work with. And for me, I see myself as one who it's important for me to be present. And Jeff, I found myself uh, having to be present quite a bit in crisis, right? I find myself, people want me around when things are not their best, which is taxing on me, but I have accepted that. And so I find that really what drives me to the death care industry is not necessarily the industry itself, but it's the ability to be there for a grieving family and to celebrate that person who has passed on, to celebrate their life. And to also be their ears and their eyes and to be able to work on their behalf has been what has been most gratifying for me. And so I believe that I've been called to funeral service all my life. I started right out of high school. The first job I ever had was at a funeral home. Did that for a little while. And in funeral service, it has its highs and lows, right? So you have a time where people are dying. This business is booming for the funeral establishment. And then there are other times where it's slow. You know, there's not much going on. And so a lot of times your funeral homes are small businesses that, you know, have to operate with tight budgets. And so I realized that I was there during a slow time. You know, my brother couldn't go out like that, Jeff. So I had to figure <laughs> figure something out. And so uh, I said, I'll just go to A&T and, and then I'll be an attorney. The whole attorney thing didn't work out for me. I didn't want to prosecute or defend anyone. And that whole process was weird for me. So during that time, accepted a call 
to ministry. Completed a, a degree in political science from A&T, attended Wake Forest Divinity. Now, coming back now to 2013, I had a very close friend, Jeff, um, who w- was a preacher, pastor, and he had sickle cell. Mm. And he was 10 years older than I. He would always talk about his death, not only death in general, but he would talk about his death mm. as a young person. And I always connected to him. And we would talk about death together. It's, mm. I know, it's weird, but this is how I got here. And so uh, we would talk about death. And one night, a friend called me and said, I think that something is wrong. I can't wake him up. And I went over to his home, and there he was, my best friend, uh, lying on his bed, dead. And... Uh, I was not surprised that I was in that situation. I was not surprised by that. Almost expected it, Jeff. Really? Um, to, I did. I did. I expected it. And was it just from your conversations? And... It was from my conversations. He, once again, he had sickle cell, oh. so he was always hyper aware of of that. Of that, right? That he understood that people with sickle cell don't live long. And that he wanted to make the best of the time that he was given. That was his understanding. And so, you know, he lived his life that way. And, you know, I found him. And during that same time, my wife and I were about to give birth to our first child. And I was certainly in a time of transition. And one day I just happened to walk into a Serenity Funeral Home. And I felt that I was connected immediately. And I just began to do the work and Reginald Woodard was there. He has passed on now. He was a mentor for me, someone that allowed me to understand what it really took to work in funeral service, to love families, to to really lean in and uh, get in the trenches with them and to make sure that they had everything they needed. And so that was 2013. I've been working in funeral service uh, mostly ever since that time. I've completed the funeral director licensure educational requirements through uh, Forsyth Technical Community College, and I am now am waiting the, the right opportunity to pursue an apprenticeship. And so that's sort of how I got involved. I started right after high school, and then the opportunity presented itself later on in life. What have you learned from the funeral directors program? What's that like? So they have, in the state of North Carolina, you have two different licensures. You can do the funeral director, which means that you don't embalm, basically. You do everything else but embalm, and then you have a funeral service licensee. That means that you're both a director and embalmer. Or you can actually do just the embalmer. So it's actually three, funeral director, funeral service licensee, and then embalmer. So I elected to go through the funeral directing program. I've never felt like I had enough time to embalm. (laughs) That is... Very demanding work, as you would imagine, right? A lot of time at night, early mornings, and I just didn't want to be away from my family, not at this point, Mm -hmm. um, during those times. And so I felt it was better for me to pursue the funeral directing. Um, You take a number of courses in biology, accounting, business management, and then you have some of your core classes, English, math, basic, you know, fundamental courses. and That was the most challenging course for me is a course that dealt with the different diseases of the body 
And what we were asked to do was to go through a number of case studies and to determine, based on the case study, the cause of death, how do you sign the death certificate, what terminology do you use for that. That instructor, he took that part of funeral directing very seriously. And I spoke to him about it. I said, why is your your course so difficult? And he says, I want, if you can get through my course, then you can handle being a funeral director. Mm -hmm. And that's important for me that, you know, people are not just skating through, but that you actually are being challenged. You mentioned when we were talking on the phone that you felt like more and more African-Americans were choosing cremation as an option. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So I think that everybody is choosing cremation more at this point because it's just way more affordable option. And for black people, what I found is that they want to be able to have that church experience. They want the body present. That's important for most black people. There's also a stigma in our community that if you get cremated, you didn't have any money. So Mm. the body is not present. Then for black people, that means that there was a financial issue. So for many black people, they want to have the body present at the service in a casket, dressed the whole nine, everything, uh, flowers, preachers, they want the whole nine. But instead of going to the cemetery, they want the remains to go to the crematory. And that decision in itself saves them a lot of money. Yeah. And I think it is. I think a part of it is economic now across the board. I mean, I know friends who've lost loved ones and it becomes an economic decision. I think I mentioned to you, Randall Keeney, who's going to be interviewed, I mean, one of his comments was, you know, a family should not go bankrupt trying to bury the loved ones. Absolutely. And I think that's real. No, it's definitely real. Jeff, I get in some spaces, I turn into a reformist, man. It's like, you put me somewhere, I want to try to change it. It's just something about me. And so what I found in funeral services, like, really the way that, you know, that funeral homes arrive at the bottom line doesn't really keep the consumer in mind. It's all about profit to me. And I think that is, I push back on the notion that funeral service, you know, understanding that you have to pay your bills, but to be profit driven in that way, to me, is almost immoral. To have a grieving family come and to place that burden on them at that time. Now, if there's insurance, then I think that should be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times in our community, there may not be insurance. And to not be flexible in, you know, what you're able to do and to provide and at what price point, to me, I have a serious issue with. And so that was one of the things for me, like, listen, I know what the markup is. And I know that I can give you what you would pay $10,000 for. I can give that to you for for half and still make money off of that. And I think that's something that I've always considered to be important. Yes, value. Yes, we want a professional service, but it has to be affordable. Yeah. It's not what it says about the family struggling with these decisions. For me, it's a cultural question. It's about us. It's about a community. I mean, how are people able to bury their loved ones with dignity and respect and focus on remembering and celebrating their lives than they have to worry about so many different yeah. other questions. And yeah. and that's part of why we do the podcast, because part of this is, is about grieving, and part of it's about the bureaucracy. Part of it is about the systems and the opportunities to be able to bury people affordably and also to be able to settle estates and do all these other things in a way that people have good information and they have support. I've got one more question that I want to ask you as I'm winding down. Are there common questions that you find when you're dealing with African-American families that are in mourning that come to you? 
as a part of your role, either pastorally and or of the practical questions of burial? One of the most consistent questions, Jeff, is why? That's always a part of the discussion, especially in my role as um, associate pastor, youth pastor. Why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Certainly, Scripture gives us enough that we could deal from a biblical perspective, but that doesn't really speak to their question of why. Um, that why is uh, a question that they have to find the answer to. Well, you know what I've also found, Jeff? There is one demographic in particular that I've found a consistent, and that's black men. When black men are dealing with grief, they normally respond with anger, mm-hmm. which is certainly a part of the grieving process we all do. Mm-hmm. You're going to go through anger, regret. You're going to have all of those emotions. Sometimes you will find yourself feeling good. There's an imbalance in your emotional state. But for black men, it is always this aggression, this microaggression towards funeral home staff. And I've come to embrace that because I know even for me as a black man, I know that when someone is taken that is close to us and our frustration, because you're talking about a black man that has to struggle. And that is a part that's normative that, you know, you're talking about the same black man that is that may be pulled over for driving while black. and. They may be followed in a convenience store. Uh, These same Mm. lived experiences, they carry on even with our grief. And even at the end of life, when we have to deal with someone that we love. And so it's very interesting. But even Mm. in that, I found that that's why it's so important for someone like me to be there, to understand, to have that understanding that and to diffuse them in the way that that I know uh, will be meaningful because you can't push back with anger. You can't, that's not the way to do it, but to push back with love and compassion and understanding because really that's what they're saying. It's happened mm-hmm. again. I feel isolated again. And so that's been something that I've enjoyed doing. But the question of why is really that a question that's always thought provoking for me. Mm. Well, Bradley, we really appreciate that you're there. And, uh, Glad that you're here with us today. As we get ready to close, I'm going to put you on the spot. If somebody's listening to this podcast and there was one YouTube hymn out of the black church that you would recommend it be Googled, what would it be? Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold Uh, to God's unchanging hand. And it says that time is filled with swift transitions, not on earth unmoved. One can stand. You have to build your hope on things eternal and hold to God's unchanging hand. That has been the most powerful hymn for me. All right. Hey, I'm going to say amen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carly doesn't have to say <laughs> Hey, well, Bradley, man, we really appreciate you being here uh, on the podcast, talking to us about the African-American church, the richness of it, about uh, your experience working through issues within the black community, and also your experience in the funeral home ministry is real insightful. On behalf of Carly Malcolm and myself, we really, really appreciate you being here on the Good Grief Podcast. Jeff, I really appreciate you doing this. All right. Thank Thank you you very much, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. 
You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and until next time, take care. 